Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. Hey folks, Human Performance Outliers podcast is growing and due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. See what happens. Whatever you guys, we so what do you guys think? We're up and rolling. All right. Get well, started. Well, Zach, let's welcome uh, Dr. Mark Bubbs. He is, uh, you know, I've been on Mark's podcast. A bit as well. I don't know. Have you been on Mark's podcast? I can't remember if you've been on there. No, I don't think so. Well, that maybe is maybe, maybe, got, maybe Mark I, put you on. Are you still here? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, we got to get you out for sure. Cool. No, so, I'd be happy to. It'd be a blast. So Mark, tell, tell the people a little bit about yourself. Um, you know, I know you are affiliated with, uh, you're, you're, you're a healthcare provider affiliated with the uh, Canadian national basketball team and you're, you're interested in sports performance, obviously. So tell us a little bit about your background and then we can just start digging into some stuff. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I'm the performance nutrition lead with the Canada basketball and uh, you know, trained as a naturopathic doctor up here in Canada and um, always had a background in sport and nutrition and exercise. So, you know, even when it was working with general population in terms of helping with weight loss and you know, pre-diabetes and hypertension and all these things. It was just such big wins when you're using those tools. And then, of course, that dovetailed into just keeping athletes healthy. And, you know, whether, whether it's guys who are playing in college or the NBA or with our national team, you know, it's, a, it's such a big part of the puzzle for, uh, especially for team sport athletes and, you know, endurance as well. I'm sure Zach can speak to that. You know, if you're not, uh, if you're missing days because you're sick and run down, then that's really tough to, tough to perform in the long run. So, you know, always had a passion for, for exercise and sport and then you know the nutrition piece laid on top of that and then yeah here we are yeah i mean i just i'm just not to, to, to sort of sort of interrupt this thing but i saw that uh i think chris paul you know chris paul in the nba just put out a thing saying that after every game he eats a beyond meat burger to feel better you know for his recovery which I find that a little a little interesting, uh, you know, considering it's basically a you know a, a burger filled with processed seed oil and, and so on and so forth. Not not to immediately be controversial, but <laughs> oh no, no, I just, I, just sure. I mean, there's some strange practices for sure. I mean, this, I mean you know, you know, you know they're, that was they're invested in that company, and so it's kind of interesting to see what what the athletes are willing to promote. To, you know, obviously in the name of. I don't know if it's the name of health or money, but I kind of be a little cynical. So tell us a little bit. So how is the transition going from the, the you know, the run-of-the-mill average person uh, versus working with high-level athletes? I mean, what, what kind of considerations are, are different in, in those two populations? Absolutely. There's, there's a lot of different considerations. I think to start with, there's a, a lot of similarities between the two, although they're not maybe as obvious initially. And one of them comes into consistency. You know, whether it's on the nutrition front, uh, the training front, and their skills, you know, they're just 
consistent day in, day out, week after week, month after month, year after year. And that leads to that exceptional athleticism and, and, and all the athletic feats. And I think that's where a lot of the general population gets stuck. You know, they sort of, they, they struggle with consistency. They're shotgunning from one approach to the next. And, and that leads to a lot of plateaus and regressions. And so, you know, that's definitely been something I've tried to relay to, to the folks I see in general practice because it is, you know, although they're, they have different goals and obviously different genes and different skill sets. Um, you know, the training loads high when you're an athlete, but when you're someone who's working long hours and not sleeping enough and, you know, struggling with weight gain, I mean, you, there's a lot of internal stress going on there as well. So it's just, just trying to relay those, those messages. And it always starts, you know, as you guys know, nutrition, you know, getting the training plan, right. The lifestyle, the sleep, stress management, those types of things are just so fundamental, whether you're, trying to feel good, look good and, and get through the day. Or if you're really chasing a, you know, an athletic goal or a, you know, gold medal or whatever it might be. Yeah. You know, that's an interesting topic. And it's one that I've always kind of found fascinating within the world of sports. And I, I think I first got exposed to it when I switched to a high fat, low carb diet um, years ago. And, you know, it was, it was interesting because I think a lot of times what people wanted to do kind of a surface level dissection of like, okay, well, this is how fat is metabolized in the context of endurance. This is how carbohydrate is metabolized in the context of endurance and you know, carbohydrates, a faster acting fuel source. Therefore you're going to go faster with it. And it, it paid no attention to all those other things you mentioned, like your sleep quality, your energy levels for the course of the day, your recovery and all these other things that actually mount up to, putting you in a position to perform on race day. Um, and that's not even to get into the context of the specific event too. And the, the other thing I always get, sure. you get really, uh, I don't know if I, what, what I get with it, but it's just interesting that when people want to say like low carb diet for endurance, it's like, okay, continue. <laughs> are we talking the 1500 <laughs> meter? Or are we talking on exactly. 24 hour? It's, it's like people, people never want to narrow it down to the absolute context that's required to actually answer the question. And then you just get left with all this like almost meaningless back and forth, I guess. <clears throat> yeah, such a great point. And I mean, one of the reasons why I wanted to write my, my new book here is, is part of that. One of the sections we talk about that endurance and a lot of Prof. Uh, Paul Larson's work and, and Phil Moffatone and that you know, great paper they wrote a few years back, Athletes Fit But Not Healthy. And, and distinguishing that idea of what is fitness, you know, the ability to undertake an exercise task versus, you know, health. What is health? Well, you know, a state of well-being. And, and those two things, as they were seeing, especially at the elite levels, you know, you're just seeing far greater amounts of athletes who are struggling with, uh, you know, physical symptoms, with deficiencies, with mental, emotional symptoms than, than should have been. And so this idea of overtraining even being a, almost a proxy for athletes who are in poor health you know, obviously things like training intensity and volume are going to play into that. But this picture of, of poor athlete health is a big reason for that. And just as you mentioned there, uh, Zach, you know, the, the, today's diet in terms of the processed food diet, ultra processed food. I mean, when you look at the U.S., Canada and the U.K., you know, 50 percent of all household spending is on processed, ultra processed food. And it's, it's pretty crazy because if you're in London and you take the train to, to Paris, it goes down to 18 percent. You know, I mean, they're eating real food. You go to, you know, Italy, 14%, Portugal, 10%. And so just getting back to really, you know, focusing on, on, on real food and 
ensuring that athletes are healthy enough because that was a big one that came out not too long ago is that you know in, you know i think it was the british uh, sports medicine journal that you know frequent illness is incompatible with elite performance and so if you're you know whether you're training for your own personal best marathon or whether you're more on the elite side if you're constantly run down and sick uh, and we even see in the research now you don't even have to be sick right just upper respiratory symptoms a lot of the work by dr michael gleason and dr um Dr. Neil Walsh, even if you have symptoms, I mean, that's again, signs that the really, the engine's starting to overcook a little bit and you, you gotta get back to, you know, working with your coach or your nutritionist, whoever it might be to make sure that training plan's on point. And obviously I know you do a lot of uh, coaching as well, Zach, and all your accomplishments, but those are things I'm sure that you must see a lot in people who come to you for, for help, right? Yeah, you know, <clears throat> I, th I find it just like really interesting at the individual level with coaching. That's what I think, I like the most about it is everyone comes with a different package of, situ of circumstances. And it's like, you know, you might have someone who's got a really stressful job and that's going to be a hurdle that we need to kind of get over in terms of programming properly for them. And someone might come with all the time in the world to train. And then we need to decide, well, how much of this time do we actually need to use for training without kind of overreaching and doing more, more of something than is, than is necessary and end up like regressing because of that. And, and there's all sorts of other things. And I think um, to me, especially within in the world of extreme endurance, where there's still a lot to be learned um, from the scientific side of things, it's, uh, it's kind of mind boggling to me how, 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 I wouldn't say how many people, but when people put down absolutes and like yeah. determine like, this is the way to do this and anything else is a compromise. And then I'm, you know, I'm just like, that's, 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 that's kind of a cop out. That's not really the way it's going to work. And, you know, fo folks are going to have their, their unique set of circumstances and those set of circumstances are going to kind of create a path for their most successful um, situation. Um, you know, and as a coach too, like, you know, I, I coach more folks who are, who are like working a full-time job. They have a family and stuff like that. I, I don't coach a whole lot of people who are winning races or running at the front of the pack type of individuals. And I think that's, it just adds an extra dimension, I think, at that point when people have other priorities outside of just getting from A to B as fast as possible. Yeah, I mean, it is amazing, the, the sort of the mental, emotional stress side of things. And, um, you know, I know recovery experts like Dr. Shona Halson, I mean, that's her first go-to with all the recreational sort of athletes, even if they're kind of recreational elite, is that sleep, you know, just that first pillar mm -hmm. of, okay, are we getting to that seven hours, can we get to eight hours? Where are the naps in there? You know, are the things compromising sleep? I mean, you know, it's, if you have little ones at home, it's tough, a lot of clients, you know, that glass of wine or two at the end of the day feels pretty good, but uh, all of a sudden we start bumping into the REM sleep and then it's, you know, maybe a little more caffeine in the morning and it's, it's all sort of to get through the day in the short term, but at, you know, at the end of the day, it starts to compromise some of these bigger goals that people might have. And, you know, unless somebody points it out to you, I think it's tough for a lot of people to just realize that, uh, you know, these things are trickling into their, into their routine, whether it's, you know, the food or the training and, and recovery. And that's gotta be kind of an interesting thing for you too, working with basketball players. Cause if the, if the schedule with the guys you're working with or anything like, you know, the NBA players, you look at some of these, these schedules where they're, you know, they're maybe playing late into the night, one night, and then heading to another city on the other side of the country the next day and kind of doing that over and over again. And, and that's just the regular season. So like in terms of establishing a, a sleep routine, I would think that would be one of the hardest things to kind of nail down. I mean, it's definitely staggered. And 
and even circling back to just Canada basketball, I mean, when I was growing up, we had one player, you know, Steve Nash playing on the national team, obviously phenomenal two-time MVP. And it's been amazing in Toronto the last two decades to see the growth because now we've got more kids playing basketball than ice hockey in Toronto, if you can imagine that. And, um, you know, now we're, we're having to cut players who play in the NBA on, on the national team. So just, you know, massive, massive shift there. And, and it is a different schedule. Yeah. When you're playing in the NBA, it's, it's all, um, it's all pushed back. So, I mean, guys are playing every night at 7 PM, 7:30, sometimes eight. And then, you know, you get done playing. There's all the adrenaline off of that. And um, so, so getting to bed, getting down to sleep is, is going to be much later. Oftentimes if they're not fueling well, you'll see a lot of guys classically, you know, some guys like Dwight Howard classically, like, bags of Oreos before bed. <laughs> um, you know, I think Kyle Lowry kind of got leaner there a few seasons ago and just by putting away some of that fuel that he was uh, taking on board post post games, you know, when you're kind of not getting the right food in, 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 the, in the dinner meal and not fueling adequately through the day. Cause it's tricky when you, for these guys, to, even when they get to the gym um, or the arena ahead of time, they're there quite a few hours ahead of time. And so it actually makes it a little bit tricky to, uh, to get the right fueling in. But nowadays the teams are really spending a lot of money on all the facilities, you know, putting in the state of the art kitchens, got the team chef and trying to get the guys to eat in the facilities as much as they can. And it's a, it's a way for them to start to control fueling a little bit, which is, you know, great for the players and, and great for the teams as well. Hey, yeah. Mark, seen, speaking of just fueling and diet, I mean, have you seen any, like, I mean, we, I mean, I, you know, we're aware of, you know, we've got these, high high level athletes that are that are clearly they've got some genetic gifts you know i mean you don't i mean you know there's certain type of people that you know you don't you know even just height from for basketball i mean you're not going to be an nba star at five foot two or you know i can't can't a basketball team five foot two so there's some genetic for sure advantages you know and we see that in all kinds of top athletes whether it's the nfl or, or other sports and and they I mean, when you look at their diet sometimes it's just absolute garbage i mean they're eating nothing but fast food i mean we see these guys they come into this at, you know, 21, 22, 23 years of age, that, that that is their diet. And that is what they have, you know, lived on and done well on. But have you seen like um, a consistent pattern of diets that seem to work better than others for people? Or is it just all over the place? It's an interesting one, Sean, because obviously sports like hockey, American football, rugby, you know, when you're young, you get into lifting at a young age and you start to put two and two together that you need to eat to be able to get big enough just to get on the field or on the ice. Right. And so sports like basketball, even soccer, you know, these kids have such a high skill level. And as you mentioned with basketball in terms of height, you know, if you're six foot eight and you've got a 44 inch vertical leap and you're, you know, one of the fastest guys in a 40 and you can shoot and pass, I mean, you're, you're going to get, <laughs> get pretty close. And so oftentimes it, just like you mentioned, these kids are really young, you know, you're going into the league at 19 now, uh, 20 years old and, you know, if I think back to what I was eating when I was 18 or 19, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't fantastic. And so, yeah, there's a lot to be learned on that side of things in terms of even, you know, meal frequency through the day, um, getting enough protein in, getting enough total calories in. Um, it's, it's ironic because it's actually sort of almost the polar opposite of what we see in the general public. You know, the person who's not doing enough activity or movement and totally over fueling all day long whilst they're sedentary. I mean, Team sports uses up a lot of calories, the physical contact, the acceleration, deceleration, change of direction. It's, you know, you need an awful lot of fuel. And, and this is where in, in sports like basketball, you know, you start to see some of these non-contact injuries where guys are just landing from a jump stop and all of a sudden, you know, fibula breaks. You know, we get all these random 
injuries happening. And, and that's where you can see that picture of you know, low energy availability over a longer period uh, of years building up where all of a sudden you think, geez, these guys are having some random injuries where there's just really no contact. And so, yeah, the big thing with especially even with guys who are seasoned vets in the league, but especially for our young guys, we start at 13 years old trying to, you know, indoctrinate might be a bit of a strong word, but trying to get them used to the, the fueling pattern and what they need to take in. And, um, and they play so much. It's just a matter of really it is like keeping them healthy is such a big part of it because if colds and flus are a reality and, you know, studying when you're a kid as well is tough, but, uh, but yeah, this is some, definitely some, some things to consider because uh, they can get away with a lot when you're, you know, high skill sports like basketball or, or soccer. Yeah, well, Mark, I, mean, I, think, I think it's a that's a pretty interesting point, and I've been talking about this for several years now. That I think the diet impacts, you know, tissue quality and, and and probably impacts injury rates. And I think we we see, you know, I mean, particularly in youth athletes now, we're seeing more and more pediatric ACL injuries and other injuries we didn't yep. see, you know, in, in people that were until they got older. And and so some of the people think, well, the kids are just playing more sports now; they're more active. And I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think if anything, we see more kids are in it less active and we still, you know, cause I, I saw that in kids that weren't athletes that were tearing ACLs. I mean, they're out there playing on the playground, you know, they went out there and, and did some running and their, you know, their, their, their strength to weight ratio wasn't what it should be. You know, you know, there's probably compromises to, to, you know, the, the actual tissues themselves. And so we see that. Is there a way that you guys, I mean, you know, as far as injury mitigation, I mean, is there any way you guys can assess, I mean, you can look at an athlete and say, we can do this test or that test and say you're more likely to have, I mean, I know there's, there's stuff with landing, landing kinematics for ACLs and stuff like that. And we see it a lot with the females, but is there any kind of state of the art test you can, you can look at somebody and say, Hey, you're, you're more likely to, to have an injury based on this or that. You know, one of the things that kind of intrigued me and I, and I, and I should follow up on this, this point is, you know, the, the, uh, uh, the, the phenomenon of these advanced glycation end products that, that infiltrate our tissues mm-hmm. and bind with the proteins and there are ways to assess that through like skin, skin autofluorescent readers. And I just wonder if that would be something that might have, you know, some utility in, 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 in something like that. Cause you know, you could, you could easily do that. You know, it's a 15 second scan and see what someone's advanced glycation endpoint uh, load might be. And, and then you can kind of get an idea of what you could do over time to mitigate that. And there's probably other things you could look at. I know we see, Things like these industrial seed oils, which are, you know, in this Beyond Meat burger that Chris Ball is touting about. <laughs> yeah, no, accumulate sure. in the in the fatty fatty tissues and probably every probably in fact, in fact every single cellular membrane is going to have some of that incorporated. I think uh, for you know no good effect in my view. But anyway, any any thoughts on that type of stuff? Well, it's funny just even circling back to the Chris Ball thing, the, you know, the Netflix special there. What was it? What the health? You know, it's amazing how that can even influence player behavior. Right? You get. Um, you know, as much as we want people to get, make decisions based off information, you know, Dr. Peter Jensen, our sports psychic can of the basketball is quick to point out, you know, people make decisions based off emotions um, and they, they make decisions based off of trust. And so all of a sudden, if you've got friends around you or family who are into a, you know, they've watched a certain documentary and are eating a certain way, then it's, it's amazing how that'll, you know, they'll adopt that or decide to kind of jump into that. And so that's definitely one that we've got to, we're always doing our best to to help the guys out and to, to let them know what we'd like to do at kind of the basketball. And yeah, as it relates to injuries, I mean, we got a great team, Charlie Weingroff's our head strength coach, uh, Sam Gibbs performance director. And so you know, they've got a battery of tests that puts the guys through every, every training camp to see, you know, how they're moving, how they're performing. It is fascinating always to see, you know, certain guys who don't score well on, on certain 
tests and for whatever reason, you know, injury rates are, are really low and, and no, you know, no random non-contact injuries and the other guys can, you know, obviously you're always trying to maintain, you know, full range of motion and, and all these patterns, but uh, you know, you get some guys who just get more injury prone. And so it's definitely with regards to the testing. I mean, as guys get older, that's typically when they start to, you know, and older in the NBA now is late twenties, early thirties, you know, start to feel the joints a little more, all of a sudden more aches, more inflammation. And, and now, even though you've been telling them for three, four, five, six, seven years about certain things, now, now they're ready to listen. You know, they're ready to take it on board a little bit more, make a few changes. Um, you know, again, things like sugars, particularly sugars late in the evening. I mean, if guys are going to be taking those in, we try to get it around training, around exercise, so they can burn it off. Um, but the ones that start to interfere with sleep and the ones that late in, into the night, um, those are definitely the ones that can really start to add up. And, and we see on various tests, I mean, guys can't hide too much. You know, you get the HA1Cs starting to creep up towards a high end of normal and CRP starting to come up. And um, we started to do a little bit of work with this, with CGMs to see how our guys are doing the certain players. And, you know, even the waking fasting glucose, you, you know, you'd obviously know about the Sean, but I mean, people would be surprised to see how high it can get in an athlete. If, and sort of highlighting the fact that they're not feeling the way that is best for them. And I think Zach touched on this before, where we have these sort of norms that we use across various sports and it's great to have those norms, but we definitely need to be looking at the individual because if we have guys who are, you know, getting up to go to the bathroom every night and who struggle with real huge energy dips, um, you know, it's, it's, t we got to look under the hood and see what's going on. And that's what we try to do, you know, with, the, with our guys at Canada basketball for sure. Yeah, I mean, we, we touched, Zach and I touched on this a, a while back. We had a guy on by the name of uh, Alessandro uh, 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 Ferretti, and, we, and he saw yeah. the same thing with high-performance athletes that they were seeing, you know, relatively high levels of glucose. And I, and I had the same, you know, same thing with me, and even though I was on a low-carb diet, uh, I, I saw relatively high fasting glucoses. I mean, my postprandial numbers were very stable. But I think there's something about the athletic physiology, and, and we know that uh, – some of that, what we know, exercise is going to stimulate glucose release. I mean, your liver will dump glucose just to fuel your demands. And so I think there's some athletic physiology, and we don't know if it's pathophysiology or athletic physiology when it comes to that. Um, so I think that's an interesting question, uh, and, and I think it's something we need more information on. You know, hopefully more studies will come out, you know, looking at that unique phenomenon. But how are you – so let's say you've got a guy who's, you know, late 20s, early 30s. He's starting to feel – you know, a little beat up, you know, obviously it's, it's a stressful, what are you doing uh, from, from, from diet lifestyle? What, what things are you doing to, to improve that if, if that's what the athletes presenting with? Yeah. I mean, a lot of times it, it's around, um, you know, even in terms of fueling the guys will be coached and told the various programs or on teams to be taking in, you know, simple sugars before games, but all of a sudden guys start to having that an hour, an hour and a half before a game versus 15 minutes. And so, you know, rebound hypoglycemia is sort of a real potential problem for some of these guys. Where by the time it's tip off, all of a sudden it's, it's low energy. Guys are sluggish coming out uh, of the game, and 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 that's one where you know some great research earlier on done by uh, Mark Russell over in the UK with with soccer players, and showing just that. You know, if if you started having these, you know, again, sports drinks an hour, an hour and a half before uh, your training or an event competition, I mean rebound hypoglycemia is setting in right as you're about to take the pitch. And that's a, that's a big problem because then it just sets guys up to struggle throughout the entire game. And you see that at halftime as well, just way too many simple sugars. And, and again, you kind of come out of the gates really slow in the second half. So 
sometimes that's individual players, sometimes that's a whole team, but that's, that's a big place to start. And even around, um, you know, with whether it's breakfast, first meal of the day, you know, a lot of times guys are just used to, again, the total amount of, of fuel going in tends to be more on the, uh, you know, high glycemic side. If obviously it's a lot of issues with the glycemic index, but you know, more simple carbohydrate, but it's, it's quite a ways away from training guys are still a couple hours before they're going to uh, hit the gym. So I think a lot of the work now, and you see this in when, you know, when I spoke with various performance teams in, in basketball and, and soccer as well for the, for the book, um, you know, you see more teams now strategically trying to reduce carbohydrate before specific training sessions. Um, you know, the, the carbohydrate intake of EPL football players over in England, you know, through the week is much lower than it is on game days on the weekends. And that's definitely something that, um, you know, for our guys in various times of the week, you know, that's a great place to start is with that breakfast. And you know, some of the work from guys like uh, Dr. Uh, Samuel Impey, who's done some great stuff on glycogen as a training regulator, right? So this idea of guys are just, you know, from the research that came out in the 80s and 90s of just being high carb all the time and com all continually topped up with glycogen. I mean, that can, you know, sort of blunt some of the adaptations that you can get from training of, of having, you know, liver glycogen stores that are depleted from an overnight fast and then, you know, a higher protein, higher fat breakfast, or even doing two a days and some of those strategies that tend to be more for endurance type folks, but uh, depending on, you know, certain guys in basketball can be effective as well, especially guys who need to get leaner um, or guys who naturally just have a higher, you know, blood sugars are naturally a bit higher. And that's those guys who are, you know, holding on to a bit too much weight for an athlete, their body fat's too high. You see that again, their fasting blood sugars are too high. That's when they've got to go against the trend for a lot of these guys and eat in a different way. And it's tough in the locker room when, most of those guys, I mean, even after a two month off season will come in for testing and it's, you know, six, 7% body fat after they've done whatever they want for two months. So, you know, it's, a, it's an, it's a very interesting cohort of, of, of athletes, right? Yeah. You know, that was a question I wanted to ask you is kind of related to that. Um, you know, we've talked a, quite a bit on this podcast about how youth can mask a bad diet um, I'm sure you see that with the youngsters big, big time. Yeah. You get the 24, 25 year old guy who's just like a physical freak and he's yeah. 5% body fat and he can eat junk food all day long. And um, I mean, you mentioned Dwight Howard, the guy looks like a Greek statue and he's popping up Mountain Dews in the middle of the night and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly right. <clears throat> but I guess my question is like, have you like seen uh, a lot of folks who are in their youth still. So like mid to upper twenties decide like, okay, I'm going to really target nutrition as a way to take myself to the next level and kind of switch from a standard American diet to a more strategic performance-based diet. And then come back to you and say, wow, I would have never known that this was possible. And like, I'm curious, cause you see that happening sometimes when you get guys in their, like, their forties where they kind of have to make those changes but yep. you might have a unique perspective of people who technically maybe could get away with it a little longer, but switch anyway. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's a great question. It's always that trying to find that buy-in with, with young athletes. Like how do you, how do you show them that this is an important thing to take seriously when, as you mentioned, you know, if you're 18, 22, 25, you can really get away with a lot of this stuff. And we've seen, you know, our guys who, play elite collegiate basketball NCAA who don't go into the NBA will go over to Europe to play professionally. And that's often a really eye-opening moment because if they're playing in Italy and Spain and Germany, 
you know, again, the diets there are really, you know, real food based, right? There's very minimal processed food. Um, one of our guys, Kevin Pangos, who used to play at Gonzaga, he played over in Lithuania, you know, really prominent league over there. And that was a classic scenario of a guy. He already, you know, took his training seriously and his nutrition seriously, but he really wanted to focus on everything and really, you know, emphasize his recovery because it is a grueling season. It's a much more physical brand of basketball in Europe. It's a bit more like, uh, if you remember street, some street, street ball back in the nineties or the NBA, maybe back in the nineties, but it's, it's a really physical game. And so, yeah, he layered in, you know, we were closely together. He layered a lot of stuff in on the nutrition front in terms of recovery and just total fuel in terms of really setting his protein intake. So, so based on his body weight of having a, you know, a specific target for his daily intake and just getting used to that meal frequency and intake so that at the end of the day, he doesn't even have to think about it. He just knows off a habit how much he needs to get in on that front and, you know, had a great season, played really well. And then, you know, this year is over at Barcelona, which the Spanish league right after the NBA is the next best league in the world, really in terms of talent and, and whatnot. And so, you know, he got the move over there and it's, it's just a testament to, again, if you, you know, guys who put the work in, uh, in, in all facets, right. Cause I think a lot of times in sports, athletes don't realize like every basketball player is putting in a lot of time on the court and skills but not all of them are putting the time in on the nutrition front or the recovery front. And so finding some gains there so that you can be, you know, fresher and adapting better and making it through, I mean, these are long seasons and they're really, you know, you're playing for six, seven, eight months. You know, the, if you can maintain your ability to, uh, to accelerate and recover as you get into those late latter months is, is huge. And let's, let's, let's shift a little bit over to the recovery front. So what do you, what do you, when, you know, other than getting good sleep, what are you finding is, is, is effective for recovery? I mean, there's been, you know, back and forth on uh, cryotherapy, you know, there's, there's a whole bunch of different, you know, whether massage works or not, what, what, what actually seems to really work? What do we have good solid data on that, 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 that works in both practice and in, and in, and in the lab? Yeah, that's a fascinating question because it's obviously so important uh, today. You know, teams are always looking at how they can get guys to recover better. And, you know, I spoke with Lachlan Penfold, who's the, He's the former performance director for the Golden State Warriors and, and now back in Australia working with the Melbourne Storm of the, the National Rugby League. And, you know, he's got sort of a recovery pyramid that he works with. And at the base of that pyramid is going to be, you know, nutrition, sleep, and then that mental, emotional stress side of things, which, you know, he rates pretty high, especially in team sports, because you just never know what's going on in the rest of somebody's life in terms of, um, you know, whether it's family, uh, relationships, whatever it might be. And so from there, that's the, that's the bottom rung. And then after that is that training plan, you know, in terms of who's laying out that training plan, is that training plan gearing you towards your goal? And of course, you know, it's never perfect, but you're trying to get yourself towards that end goal. And those are really the biggest rocks. And, you know, he's, he mentioned to me, you know, you could take all the ice baths you want, but if you fuck up the training plan, you really, you know, you're, you're not going to, you're not going to make it or sleep or, or nutrition. Right. Um, and so those are the, those are the biggest rocks. And as you get higher up, you get in the modalities like, you know, physical therapy and, and massage and whatnot. And at the very top of the pyramid, you've got the, the different techniques like, uh, you know, cryotherapy or ice baths. Um, and in speaking with him and, and again, Shona Halson, who's a recovery expert in Australian Institute for Sport. I mean, you know, there's no real consensus really in terms of, you know, whether one is superior than the other. Um, you know, 11 to 15 minutes of cold seems to be what the evidence supports. But it's interesting because you talk to guys like Lachlan, he just says, look, I, I give my guys the choice. They can pick the hot, they can pick the cold, they can pick the duration. But the fact that he gives them the choice, 
then they're more likely to do it and more likely to do it consistently. And he knows that they're getting some in, you know, every single practice, every single game. And that becomes the more important factor, which, you know, I really find fascinating because again, sometimes we start to try to tease out exactly what the best modality is for, for that individual. And, and no doubt there's probably some room there, but that, that notion of just consistency, whatever the player or athlete is willing to actually do time in and time again. And, and I think that's why you've seen, you know, cryotherapy increase because, you know, even though the temperatures are, you know, stupidly low, it obviously doesn't conduct like water. So your actual internal temperature is, is no different than taking an ice bath. But when you, again, when you talk to team directors and performance directors, if a guy only has to spend three minutes in a cryotherapy instead of 11 minutes in an ice bath, then all of a sudden there might be a little bit more, um, even though, again, the, the research is, is a little bit equivocal in terms of the support, it's, it's, it's easier for them to build up player buy-in to do that. And so, you know, obviously on my end with the guys, it's always nutrition first and the total fueling, especially if you get into, you know, for us, again, we'll have the World Cup in, in the fall and that's a game every other night. And so you get into these compressed windows of scheduling and that's where total energy intake, you know, again, total carbohydrate intake, all these things become pretty huge for, for recoveries um, for basketball. And so, you know, th those are some of the, definitely some of the big rocks for, for making sure that we're getting recovery in. And of course, if you do that well, then you can avoid the colds and flus. That's the big thing. You know, guys get run down, colds, flus, upper spiritual tract symptoms. That's when things start to go wrong. And then, Regardless if you're team sport endurance, you know, you just, you, you cannot maintain that level throughout a, a long, long competitive schedule. Yeah. I mean, imagine, you know, and I remember when I was playing high level sports as a youngster, I mean, you know, there was alcohol was part of that culture. I don't know if you have to deal with that too much of the guys are kind of figuring, you know, I mean, it's tough, not tough to be a, you know, 20 something year old guy and not want to, you know, run around and have a little bit of fun. So, I mean, that's gotta be something you've got to figure out how to manage that stuff as well. Um, do you find that, oh, that, sure. that, yeah. that dealing with uh, trying to convince these guys not to go out and get hammered on the weekend is <laughs> is a problem, or are they pretty much are they pretty much realizing that's not going to help them? Well, I mean, it's funny because in the research, you know, athletes binge drink more than this, the regular population. When obviously you played rugby, Sean, so I mean, you know, certain sports do have cultures around, um, and I think just today's athlete as in generations past, I mean, the amount of alcohol, I guess, there was, you know, you didn't have cameras, the internet, was, you know, there was a lot more drinking going on in the past, even, even with today's athletes. So you see more guys, you know, they're going to go out, they're going to have fun. That's, Hey, that's, that's part of, um, that's part of the whole deal for them. And it's, it's more a matter of, of trying to help them time it in a certain way so that it's obviously not interfering with important parts of the schedule. And um, yeah, I mean, this is where you get into monitoring devices, you know, in terms of collective bargaining agreements with, with you know, people don't want sleep monitors, right? They don't want you to know what they're, you know, who owns the data and all this type of stuff. So, you know, I'd say, especially our younger guys, so they're, they're really motivated and on the ball and everything else. And then, you know, as guys get older and work their different ways in, in whatever professional league that they're in, you know, some guys are just want to have a good time. And, and, you know, I always try to let them know you don't have to be perfect. You know, if we can always, even if you want to, be more on that side of things we can always just increase the playing field a little bit you know in terms of how we uh you know things like even drinking non-alcoholic beer you know the german uh, winter olympics team in the last winter olympics that's what they were hydrating with the bobsleigh men because you know hydrates better than water and the team doc said well i know we'll drink it so we'll you know we'll just we'll just give them that so <laughs> there's, there's little ways of doing things that if you if you know your population and you can kind of 
tweak things a little bit, then you, you gotta, you gotta try to do that. Right. Cause no one's just because I think nutrition's really important and really cool. It doesn't always mean my athlete does. And so finding that level of buy-in is, is huge for sure. Plus you get the added benefit of one of the guys getting placebo drunk and then laughing at him afterwards, knowing he took in zero alcohol. <laughs> Absolutely. And they just came out with a study actually for Alyssa's coffee, but university of Toronto just showed that if you, if you're a regular coffee drinker and you just look and smell coffee, you get all the cognitive benefits as if you had drunk it. So, I mean, just like you said, man, we're Pavlov's dog more than we think. And I'm pretty sure if you, if a bunch of guys drank, you know, near beer, they would actually, uh, start feeling pretty loose, even though they were yeah, just hydrating. I wanted to follow up on one thing when you were talking about the ice bass and the cryo. Um, I actually heard recently that like those can be some really good kind of tools to use in the midst of a big like training block to get you from one hard session to the next. But ultimately it's kind of trying to bypass the recovery to a degree. So at some point you want to do like maybe a deload week or a recovery day where you don't do that stuff and let that inflammation actually set in. Is there any truth to that? Or do you think like some of these cryo ice bath things are just something people should be incorporating on a more routine basis, like full stop? Yeah, that's a terrific question, Zach. And it's one, um, you know, again, Shona Halston's done a lot of work in this recovery side with, with cold and heat and definitely depending on the training block, you know, if you're in more of an adaptation phase, you've got to really watch that you don't start adding in too many ice baths or cryo, or, you know, if you're taking supplements like antioxidant based supplements and things that are going to blunt this, this natural inflammatory process, which is triggering all these adaptations to take place. Um, whereas, you know, if you get into a competitive schedule and now it's time to keep you going from one, you know, maybe it's a peaking stage in terms of before competition or between competitions. That's when we've just got to maintain what you've built through that, you know, through your training block. And so that's where you get even more benefit from a lot of the modalities that are going to start to really um, blunt inflammation. So that's what, you know, your ice baths, your cryo, um, you know, various nutritional strategies. That's when you can really have the, the biggest bang for their buck. And, and Sean has done some nice work with kind of having that, uh, you know, periodized recovery just like you periodize your nutrition or your training and, and using hot and cold and different training blocks. And she's done some cool work with endurance athletes, which we cover in the book that you can then start to, you know, just get a good sense of what you should be doing as you're building up. And it, maybe, you know, the strategy is likely going to change as you're peaking towards that big event that you're trying to hit and you're, you've got to make it to that next intense session, as you mentioned there, uh, just so that you can get all that training in to, to be able to compete at your best. Yeah, one of the things that, you know, and, and this is, you know, obviously I'm, I'm sort of biased on this, but as, as someone who's been, you know, I've been training for 40 years now and, you know, I'm, I'm very acutely aware of what, how my body feels. I've got a lot of cumulative miles on there and Zach does too, uh, nice. running, running hundreds of miles. And we both noticed that in the incorporation of more animal-based products, particularly red meat in the diet, seems to help with recovery. I don't know if that's something that you and your athletes, I know there's some athletes now that are adopting a plant-based strategy is that what is your have you had any experience with that or, or are you noticing anything along those lines yeah i mean i think it's one of those there's just so much emotion wrapped up i mean and, and obviously you know this better than anyone sean but there's so much emotion wrapped up in, in the term red meat right i mean if you just l labeled all of the benefit you know proteins essential fats minerals etc of this food and just labeled it x you know every performance nutritionist, everybody in the general public, every doctor, 
um, practitioner would say, that's perfect. That's a great food. Give it to me. Um, but, but we have such a preconceived notion of, of what's going on with, uh, or what we think is happening with, with red meat and inflammation, all these various factors, um, that that's a huge one that comes up. You know, guys will be avoiding red meat for quote unquote health benefits. And yet, you know, we're replacing it with things that are going to be processed. We're replacing it with, you know, unfortunately, hey, if, if people want to eat more vegetarian or vegan, then, you know, there are real food sources of those you can go to. But once we start getting into the fake and packaged meats, that's when we're really starting to have a, a, a recovery drop. And guys can get away with it when they're young in terms of performance, but it's going to catch up with them, especially as you get to the late 20s, 30s, definitely past 40 is, is when, um, you know, you see that all the time, especially in, in day-to-day practice. And um, I mean, even when we look at the research around just morning fasting glucose in terms of mortality, um, cardiovascular disease risk, you know, if you're in the highest uh, quartile, then, then you're much, much greater risk of, of cardiovascular disease. And of course, the Whitehall study showing a dose-dependent response to that. And so I think sometimes we got to say, hey, if these, these foods are reducing fasting glucose in the morning for these folks, fantastic. Inflammation's coming down. Um, if it's the general public, you know, things like belly fat, abdominal circumference, all that's getting a lot better. You know, we seem to lose the forest through the trees sometimes with, with being so bought into certain strategies that we don't zoom back out to 30,000 feet and say, okay, what are all the markers telling me? What's the subjective, you know, information from this patient or athlete? Um, and if all these things are, are looking good, then, you know, this is where we're sort of good to go. And these days, unfortunately, people are trying to follow directions Again, this is maybe more general population, but they're trying to follow certain patterns and they're struggling. They're not, you know, the classic is people who train for a marathon. You know, they train for months and months and months and lose virtually no weight, even though they're trying to. And that is just a classic scenario of of folks just not feeling appropriate for them. And, you know, even now in the research, 30 to 50% of the training sessions says, you know, the ACSM and Dietitians of Canada, that people should be fueling with that for endurance. And I mean, if if you're a recreational, for me, I mean, it's got to be even two thirds at least because you just don't need you know, that excessive fuel on board is going to really start to hamper um, their ability to use their own fuel reserves. And then they just never get in a position where the glycogen status is low enough to, to elicit some of this really great adaptations that happen at a cellular level as well. So it's, uh, yeah, I think sometimes um, we almost make it too complicated, you know? <laughs> Yeah, you know, we've, we've touched on that a bit in, in previous ones where it's like this new age of running or the most modern kind of wave of running seems to be focused a lot more on I'm going to do this so that I can justify a bad eating habit or I'm going to do this as kind of like a one-off challenge. I'm just going to try to complete a marathon and there's very little attention paid to the process. And then the folks who are paying attention to the process are buying into some of these kind of protocols that are being pushed out by kind of the sports supplement companies where you need to have like, you know, have your gel every 20 minutes or have your sports drink every 45 minutes. And it's like, here you have a person who's going out for a four mile run and they're consuming the number of calories they're burning on that run with their inter-workout and pre-workout fuel sources. And, you know, it's, it's some of the lowest quality nutrition you can probably find in terms of just holistic food choices and it's like, it's no wonder people are gaining weight training for a marathon. Oh, for sure. I mean, and you dovetail that into that. I mean, the speed they're running too. I mean, they don't even need carbohydrate. They should be fueling just off the fat. I mean, if they're running at 65, 70%, I mean, mm-hmm. it really is. And then it just it leads to a whole host of problems. I mean, it's, uh, 
it, it's a shame because obviously these folks are dedicating so much time. It's time away from family. It's time away from work. They're trying to, uh, to improve their health really is a big part of it. I'm sure you see that, the Zach, of uh, people are doing this as a challenge, as a goal. They want to improve their health. And literally four months later, you know, they might be in worse health. I mean, physically in terms of just the pounding on the, on the joints. And uh, yeah, so I think, I think there's a great place for, you know, obviously all the great work that you guys do, but there's a great place to help people fuel a bit better. And, and in that whole idea of training day nutrition being different than race day nutrition. And I think that's kind of an easy way for people to start thinking about this. And, you know, once you tell them if you're 10% body fat, you could, you know, 30, 40,000 calories, you could run 15 marathons. It's like, mm-hmm. it sort of resets like, wait a minute, what did you say? Like, you know, I think yeah. they're, they're, we've just scared everyone out of having this hypoglycemia. And even in the research with elite endurance, we see more, that hyperglycemia, like we're, we're overfueling when a lot of the stuff coming out with the continuous glucose monitors, some of the case studies, um, the one out of Japan there, I think it was Sengoku was the first author and there was one elite runner and one sub elite and the elite is fueling just perfectly. You know, the, the, the rate is, is just to a T and the glucose is strong and, and the sub elite is just overfueling and the blood glucose just keeps rising and rising and rising as they're training, as they are competing. And then eventually they bonk and hit the wall and it's, you know, it's, it's just not, uh, unfortunately, you know, not tailored enough to that individual that's in front of you, as you mentioned, Zach. Yeah. And you know, it's a perfect example of context too. It's like you have the, the person who's training for their own personal benefits or their own personal targets. And you have the Olympic caliber marathon runner, who's it's just a, a apples and orange comparison almost at that point. And, you know, I'll see it all the time, like within the ultra running kind of community, uh, you know, it's, uh, to me, like that's the community that makes the most sense for a high fat, low carb diet as an option, at least, Um, you know, I'm not going to argue with anyone who wants to follow a high carb approach and it works for them and they're, you know, making improvements and healthy. Otherwise it's like, great. I'm I'm happy for you there. I'm not trying to push anything onto people, but like the, the dismissal of it's what kind of bothers me when it gets to, you know, these events that are so long that, you know, you're at 65 to 70% your VO2 max. So like, you know, like yeah, yeah, at that point, perfect. <laughs> yeah, you can start to really consider some alternative options and then putting down an absolute is like, is the last thing you should be doing in, in, in that world or in that environment. Yeah. I mean, even in, in other sports too, I mean, when I interviewed Prof Larson, he was telling me at, you know, at a blood glucose of 3.0, he was cranking out 250 to 300 Watts for three hours, you know, and, and felt great. And of course, classically in the literature, that would be hypoglycemia. That would be watch out, start to, you know, bring in the gels and everything else. And, and I think that's where, yeah, there's just this huge gap here. And of course, you know, race day nutrition being different. I mean, I think uh, that that's a, that's a different animal and, and there's a lot more agreement in terms of, of more or less what should go in. But I think in terms of that training, there's just still so much to be, and that's why it's always cool to see elite athletes doing it first. And then the researchers are then trying to, figure it out and go back and assess and, and find out how it's working versus, you know, you're always getting the athletes at that level, pushing the boundaries first and then science trying to explain or get us close to the truth, you know, after, after the fact, for the most part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, and that's one of the things I always find myself getting into discussion about is, you know, ultimately like I'll run a race and someone will look at what I'm fueling with during the race and they'll want to point to that as kind of, as a picture of what my lifestyle is like. And then I have, I find myself having to explain, it's like, 
No, like I, I consume more carbohydrates on race day probably than I did in almost the entire training block. Reading. Before that. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it's, it, and usually what I found is the easiest way to get people to kind of understand it because so many, so many people bypass this concept of that there's a periodization in training and nutrition. So yeah. like they always want to look at kind of a micro analysis, like take one day out of my calendar year and say, okay, this is what this guy's lifestyle is like. When in reality, like I might have one of the most uh, diverse lifestyles in the sense that like there may be a day where I'm running all day and there may be a day where I don't get out of bed. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> for sure. you know, I'm going to fuel differently the day I don't get out of bed versus the day where I'm running all day long. And uh, <clears throat> so what I usually tell folks is like, if you look at the full year and average everything out, you're going to see roughly on average about a hundred miles a week of training. So I'm hitting historically five to 5,500 uh, miles per year in training. And then that's all periodized with recovery and big buildups, workouts and all other stuff, races. And then uh, nutritionally, you know, my window of carbohydrate intake can be anywhere from zero grams in a day, like quote unquote, zero grams um, to, you know, upwards to like 20 to 30% of my daily intake, depending on what I'm doing. And over the course of the year, it averages out to be right around 10%. So I think most people would be very willing to say that's a low carbohydrate approach to, to life in general. Um, but it gets, it gets really kind of complicated when you try to like look at it in a, a, in kind of a tunnel versus the whole approach. And that's where I think sometimes people get tripped up and they don't really know what to do, or they don't know, they, they, they feel like they're trying to kind of plug what I'm doing into their context, which is a mistake right out the gate. But yeah, um, it's funny how people do that too. They'll take somebody who's elite, you know, national champion record holder. And then it's like, okay, well I'll just fuel the way they are, even though I'm 20 pounds overweight and I'm just doing this <laughs> marathon for the first. And it, it sounds kind of funny when you say it out loud, but it's, I think it's natural for people to want to emulate, but I think you, you're very right in the sense that, yeah, I mean, they can't just level that onto themselves and then, uh, you know, and for someone like yourself, obviously having those periods where you're having a bit of carbohydrate just keeps that gear intact. So when you need it, when you race, then it's, it's ready to go. And you haven't, uh, you haven't lost it in terms of having, you know, zero or very low carb exclusively mm -hmm. all the time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You maintain that, I guess, metabolic flexibility is probably the best way to look at it. Like I don't lose the ability to utilize carbohydrates, but I don't rely on them so heavily that if I find myself in a tough spot in a hundred mile race where the temperatures get up to hundred degrees and, you know, hydration is on the fritz and, you know, fueling is just simply not an option from a digestion standpoint. I can get through that section versus having the wheels completely come off. And I just think it, when you're looking at the number of variables in, in a hundred miler and then, you know, hundred miles now are becoming kind of like a step in ultra running because people are doing things <laughs> like just longer than that. And yeah, uh, it's, it's really fascinating to think like, just to think about like the n number of variables that you're considering at that point and kind of how all this stuff fits within that. Yeah. I mean, obviously at your level, that would be massive. And I think even as you mentioned before, just your consistency with your training, I mean, everyone could learn a thing or two just about the fact that, you know, you know how you're doing per month, per year, you're, you're banging it out all the time. And that's, you know, that's gotta be 80% of the whole story, right. In terms of whether it's mm -hmm. endurance elite team sport, someone trying to achieve their goal is just having a really solid plan, sticking to it. And then that last 20% kind of tinkering around with that individualized approach with, with whether it's a coach or a practitioner or a team doc or whoever it might be. But uh, 
I think sometimes people get, as you, you know, as you mentioned, kind of dialed into that shiny new toy or something beforehand, and they're trying to adopt the strategy that an elite person uses before they've got all their their real fundamentals in place, right? Yeah, you know, I actually had a question for you, and I'm, if you're not, if this is something outside your kind of expertise, feel free just to say say so. But yeah, no I've, I've been intrigued with this question or this thought where um, within race fueling or in competition fueling. And, uh, my first thought was like along the lines, especially within extreme endurance is like fat fuel intake is something that should almost be, I don't want to say completely avoided, but not kind of focal point of your fueling strategy, because even the leanest elite athletes, like you said earlier, have enough body fat to get them through an event and they can always replace that afterwards if they feel like they got too lean throughout the course of the event or something like that um so that's like kind of your onboard fuel tank that you don't have to worry about you can bypass digestion don't even tempt fate with that and then you come down to your kind of glycogen stores which is your finite fuel tank that's the thing you might want to kind of keep an eye on especially if you're going to be out there for an entire day um but then like this was posed to me a while ago was like this idea that uh maybe eating something could stimulate like a central nervous system response. And what I find really interesting about the mental side of extreme endurance is a lot of times it's your mind. That's the limiting factor, not necessarily your body. So if you find yourself say 75 miles into a hundred mile race and you're just, you're, you're just very unmotivated to kind of push that pedal down or keep that pedal down, but then you eat something is that like, I, th I think caffeine is probably another example of something you could utilize in this situation to fire up your central nervous system and kind of give you that mental motivation to kind of keep going. Um, and then with that, like, is that kind of open the door to fueling with fat if that's something that just happens to sit well in your stomach or you're following a more strict ketogenic diet so you're going to be more inclined to be eating those type of foods? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's an interesting question. I mean, at that distance, I mean, if we think of just carb mouth rinsing, I mean, that's, you know, evidence-based strategy. You see it all the time in, in team sport. In the last World Cup, you probably notice all the soccer players spitting, <laughs> spitting everything out onto the field. Um, and so there's a really cool example of, of yeah, the, you know, the taste buds connecting, uh, you know, through the medulla and thalamus to the cortex, the taste centers there, and then impacting the central nervous system. And so you, you get a definitive performance edge and, you know, if people are trending more low carb or keto, I, personally, I would feel that's a really potential advantage to take a you know, potential place to take advantage of right now mm -hmm. at that stage of a race. I mean, initially I would always want to have try to drip feed in some fuel consistently for that individual. Um, you know, even things like obviously honey, like, you know, isomulchulose is a slower burning carbohydrate that can, you know, do a little bit better for some folks, but, uh, but definitely the central nervous system effect of the carb mouth rinsing. And then you can get into things like, you know, caffeinated chewing gum in terms mm. of that, the speed that it gets taken up. So this is, again, if you think of team sports, a guy coming off the bench, you know, if he has a coffee before a game, you know, that coffee's peaking guys not playing until the second half. It's difficult to know when to, to be taking some of these ergogenics and even a baseball player coming off the bench as a pinch hitter. Um, you know, the chewing gum is a great way because it's going to get into the system really quick as well. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, flushing out those strategies and how it feels. And as you mentioned, the gut's obviously a huge part of this whole story in terms of what people can tolerate. Um, and, you know, in certain camps, you know, 
folks like Oscar you can droop in terms of really pushing the ability for the gut to just take up and try to push as much fuel in there as you can and train the gut so to speak which is you know obviously a different different camps but that's that's one strategy that they're trying to accomplish in terms of being able to take more fuel in obviously somebody on a low carb or keto that's going to be more like the opposite approach so you're better off to be finding that right that right amount that's you know once you get over two hours having that right amount that's going in is, is going to be pretty crucial and then i think as you mentioned the brain is just is going to be that central governor right it's, it's the one that's kind of holding you back so between your own mindset and that ability to just have something that that, that peaks it a little bit so um you know those might be strategies in terms of the dietary fats i mean with some of the recreational guys that I work with, it's a, it's a bit hit or miss in terms of the t- how they tolerate it. You know, some, I've had some athletes who tolerate it well and others who really can't tolerate it at all. So um, obviously mm-hmm. through the training blocks, one to, to uh, yeah. experiment with. And that's what I always tell folks I'm working with is when we get into like long runs and training, we start, once we get kind of probably about halfway through the training block for their goal race, we start, breaking their long runs into like field tests into two categories. And one is like a fat adaptation field test where it's like, we want to find out how fat adapted you actually are out in the environment you're going to be racing in. So we'll do like say a four or five hour long run with just water and electrolytes. Let's see how you feel. Do you feel like your energies are dipping at the end or do you feel consistent the whole way? And then the other, the other one is let's practice what you're going to do during the race. So this is like, running through your plan a your plan b and your plan c from a fueling standpoint um and we're going to practice that maybe not to the the gram quantity that you would do in the race but let's find out if that nut butter sachet sits well in your stomach or let's find out if that sports drink sits well in your stomach and really just establish what's gonna what's gonna be something you can lean on during um the that second half of a long race and it is always fascinating in terms of the stuff that people like. you know, something might even go down well, but they don't like it. <laughs> and so they yeah. don't want to have that particular thing. And you think, geez, we just nailed the right thing. And now you're, you yeah. know, it's, it's amazing dealing with humans, all the different variables of, uh, of what you need to do to actually accomplish the task. But uh, yeah, that's a great point. Hey, Mark, let me ask you about longevity. You know, I mean, as we see athletic performance, you know, athletes are getting bigger, they're stronger, they're faster, they're doing more and more things. It's, you know, we, it just continues to evolve, you know, and, and obviously there's, there's things to do and people taking performance enhancing drugs just to allow some of that. But are you seeing that the athletic career is, is lengthening or shortening or can people lengthen their careers uh, more than we could before? I mean, we see guys like Tom Brady, uh, you know, competing at the highest level into his 40s now. Are we seeing that across the board in sports that, that people are, are maintaining performance? I know personally, I'm still, when I compete in the sport I do, I'm still hanging with guys that are in their 20s, you know, even at, you know, even at Olympic levels in, in, in rowing. But I mean, what are you seeing in general with these, with these high-level athletes? Are they, are they just, is it, is it demands just so high now that they're burning out quicker or are they, are they lasting longer? It's funny you mentioned that about Tom Brady. I'm a I'm a Buffalo Bills fan, so I'm I'm happy to see him retire soon. If if that would that would work out <laughs> a lot better for for me, but uh, yeah, I mean it, it's it's I think you know for me the sleep and nutrition. You look at a guy like Roger Federer. I mean, 37 is ancient in tennis. You know, they everybody written him off a few years back when he was struggling, and then he comes back and wins multiple majors back to back U.S. Uh, Australian Opens. It gets Wimbledon. I mean, he's still dusting guys off who are in their mid to late 20s and the heavy focus there on on nutrition on some of the recovery modalities and sleep as well and 
and you see it in the NBA as well. I mean, Steve Nash is a great example. You know, there's a guy who obviously massively skilled player, you know, had tremendous physical qualities, but not when you compare it to, to NBA level. And he, he was able to play until he was 40. And, you know, even with a spondylolisthesis as well in, in his back. So that was, you know, just having to take that nutrition really, um, really seriously and, and get that recovery in, get the sleep in and just be consistent with it. I mean, you know, as you know, Sean, it gets a bit monotonous and boring, but just to be able to, to follow through on that and be diligent with it day in, day out. And then that's when you start to see uh, a bit like a endurance analogy or metaphor here, you know, in the marathon, that last little stretch when you start pulling away, it's because the other guy's getting slower, not because you're getting faster a lot of the times. And I think that's what happens now in the careers with guys really taking care of their, and even with the metrics that we can use now in terms of, you know, again, the HA1Cs, of um, CRPs, all these various blood markers that we can use around even recovery as a way to tell us, hey, how is this guy tracking or you know, whether it's technology, you know, some of the, whether it's HRV, whether it's even subjective wellness questionnaires. So on that strength and conditioning side, I think we're a little bit better at, at really teasing out how to stimulate the athlete to get the adaptation without crushing them with volume and, and really getting the wear and tear on the joints, like you know, a few decades ago might have might have been the case. Yeah, I mean that's I mean you know we always hear like guys in the NFL, it's average career length is about three years. You know, a lot of them, a lot of them get injured, and you know it's just they can't perform at that level. But it is interesting to see that we are seeing. You know, I mean, was it Tiger Woods just came back and won? You know, won the won a tournament. You know, won the Masters. Oh, amazing, uh, yeah. You know, when the people had written him off and he'd had injuries, and so. It's interesting, you know, what, you know, what we're able to do now with nutrition and recovery. And I think it's pretty, pretty encouraging. And, and you know, my, my belief is that, you know, and, and this is outside of sports, but I, I don't think we're designed to, to decay and decline and, and, and have all this health issues that we come to expect as normal. And again, this is, this is just for the average person, but we, we have so many people that, you know, they expect, oh, once I get 40, it's all downhill. I can resign myself to a life of back pain, hypertension, and, <laughs> and, 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 you know, in the dad bod. And, and I think that's just ridiculous that we've come to, to normalize that. And it's very nice to see, you know, these athletes, you know, at a high level proving people wrong. And I think hopefully it'll rub off on the rest of the population. Yeah. I mean, you're so right in the sense of something, just because something's common doesn't mean it's normal. And we sort of confuse those two things. I mean, everyone it's common that everyone's getting overweight and, you know, pre-diabetic and hypertensive, but I mean, that's, that's not the, that's not the normal. We should be, I think you're, that's why I love it. In terms of sports, great. You know, there's an outcome, you win or you lose. And I think when we take that mentality, even to medicine, it's like, are we winning? Is this person getting healthier? If, if we're not, then we got to be ready to do some strategies that are a little bit left or right of what we think is right, because we're not getting the desired outcome. Um, and I think that's where sport really helps because it's, you know, are we, are we getting better? Are we winning? Are we losing? Cause in that scenario, then the teams are ready to keep pushing until they get the outcome they're looking for. Well, it's interesting too, especially when you get into these, more popular professional sports like NBA, MLB and NFL type stuff and, you know, worldwide soccer or football is, you know, you extend your year, your career two years, that's millions and millions in some cases, almost, you know, tens or close to hundreds of millions of dollars on the table. If you can manage to do that. And we're seeing guys like LeBron James now invest. I think I saw a stat somewhere where he sinks like just North of a million dollars a year into just like rehab recovery and nutrition based stuff. Cause he knows like, if he does that, <clears throat> if he does that for his entire career and adds two extra years to his, his legacy, you know, that's probably uh, a blank check, <laughs> you know, like 
It's insane. For sure. I mean, you hit right on it. I mean, again, you're always trying to find that thing that motivates certain guys and some guys it's more on the performance side and other guy or the legacy side, even than other guys. And obviously it's normal for, you know, in terms of contracts, you know, yeah, exactly. One or two more contracts. If you get your sleep right, you take your nutrition seriously. I mean, it's, it's a lot of money. So um, it's one of the reasons why we're seeing such a trend in that, in that direction. So it's, it's good to see. Cool. Um, I don't want to take up too much of your time, Mark, if you need to get out of here. Um, uh, so if you want to share with uh, our listeners where they can find you and kind of what you're up to next. Uh, yeah, Mark, and tell us the title of your new book and when that's coming out and where people can get that. Cause I, I know, I know a lot of people are going to want to be interested in, in looking at some of that stuff. Awesome. Yeah. Jens, I really appreciate you guys uh, carving out some time today. Uh, yeah, the new book's coming out. It's called Peak, The New Science of Athletic Performance That is Revolutionizing Sports. And the whole idea is to connect people with all the experts on the front lines of performance across team sport, endurance, physique. You know, we talk about athlete health. We talk about fueling. We talk recovery. We talk mindset. And, of course, you know, the, the importance of the fundamentals in all of this. And, and then diving down the rabbit hole as well with some of the exotic stuff that people can get into. So, yeah, they can check that out at all the major bookstores and, you know, Amazon com as well and if they want to stay connected with me social media at dr bubs i got a funny last name so if you just google that you'll find all of uh, all of the relevant links and and i'll make sure the uh, my publisher sends you guys over a book as well cool awesome and that book is already in stores so that'll be may 24th okay perfect perfect so by the time this podcast comes out we'll be getting fairly close to that so it might be time just about right but we'll put links yeah. into that in the show notes folks so you can check it out and uh, take a deep dive into what we talked about today. Amazing. All right, Mark, enjoy your time in the, in your sabbatical in the UK. And then when, <laughs> Appreciate are you, it. Are you getting back to cannibal basketball uh, in the near future? Is that coming up for you? Is that? Uh, yeah. So it'll be August is training camp and we'll be heading over to the uh, world cup for basketball in September in China. Um, our under 19s are world champs. So we're hoping we can dovetail that into our, uh, our senior team. Very nice. Yeah, I didn't. Awesome. I did not realize uh, how much basketball was in Canada. You know, it's kind of a you know everybody thinks everybody thinks hockey about Canada or, or I guess lacrosse is your your national sport, which most people don't know. But uh, yeah, nice. That's a good bit of trivia there. Well done. Yeah, that is a uh, lacrosse and ice hockey. Yeah, we like to uh, punch each other in the face, and then when we're out of sport, we're sort of the polite nation. But the nicest guys around afterwards. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> that's probably the way to do it. Get it all out in the field. And then- be cool afterwards <laughs> exactly yeah exactly all right Fantastic, cool well, thanks, guys yeah thanks so much for coming on mark appreciate it this episode of human performance outliers is brought to you by fellow carnivore and legal shield associate doug lee through legal Shield's smartphone app doug is helping to level the playing field by bringing affordable legal services to everyone right on their phones for just 24.95 a month Families have instant access to a local team of lawyers working on your behalf, providing legal advice, traffic violation assistance, will preparation, IRS audit assistance, family and domestic services, and contract and document review, just to name a few. Doug also offers ID Shield, the most comprehensive identity protection and recovery service in all of North America. Members get access to a licensed private investigator to help resolve any identity theft issues that arise. Last year alone, there were more than 780 reported data breaches compromising the identities of nearly 170 million people. Responding quickly to ID theft is the best way to prevent serious complications and protect your good name. Doug offers business plans and gun owners plans as well. 
So head over to dougle.info, that's D-O-U-G-L-E-E.info to get the app and learn more about how Legal Shield has been protecting families for over 40 years. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.